Hello and welcome. You're listening to Planet Bio. This is our weekly startup office hours, where we discuss all things at the intersection of digital and biology. Before we get started, a brief disclaimer. Planet Bio is not affiliated with any institution or organization. Views belong to those who express them. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to another Planet Bio podcast. We're really excited to have the usual crew, myself, Jeff, uh, Hamdi, and Alexa. And we're joined today by Mark Rosenberg. Really excited to have you, Mark. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Wonderful. So to get started, we love to go through some intros. Mark, we'd love to hear about what you're up to these days and a bit about your path to get there. Yeah, happy to, to dive right in. So hi, everybody. Mark Rosenberg. I'm an investor at North Pond Ventures. We're a $2.2 billion life science focused VC. While my role there is, is primarily focused on healthcare technology and science tools, we also do uh, diagnostics investing and biotech investing. So we cover the full gamut. Um, my primary roles and responsibilities there is leading sourcing efforts, diligence efforts, and ultimately supporting some of our portfolio companies at the board level and really getting more of a hands-on operational approach with them. Uh, my path to venture has been definitely uh, an interesting one. So prior to joining North Pond, I was an investment banker at a firm called MTS Health Partners, which is a boutique bank in New York City, which primarily focuses on biopharma, healthcare services, and healthcare television. And while I was doing M&A work there, um, funny enough, one of the partners at the firm as I started was focused on healthcare technology and services and decided that he wanted to start a merchant banking arm, which is essentially code for investing in early stage startups as a means to win the advisory business in the long term. And so I helped that partner and a small team start making direct investments um, in the digital health space in early 2019. Funny enough, we ended up being in a syndicate with North Pond in January of 2021. And that's where I met the team and was excited about the mission. And ultimately, a couple months later, I joined uh, the team full time. And I would say prior to being a banker, I had a stint as an entrepreneur. So I was founder and CEO oh, cool. of a company called BioAlert Technologies, which was a startup that I spun out of my graduate school studies down at UPenn, which was primarily focused on building an instrument and a med tech uh, platform to measure infection levels at the site of open wounds and specifically diabetic foot ulcers. And so I built this from essentially the bioengineering lab early in my senior year of undergraduate studies at Penn and worked with a team to, you know, execute on our R&D plan, financing, and everything else that comes with the, the excitement and that uh, along with uh, all of the, uh, I'd call it, challenges associated with early stage uh, operating. So that's a little oh, bit about great. me. I, yeah, I've been in the healthcare space now though for probably about 10 to 10 to 12 years now. So awesome. So I guess uh, just to dive in, I'd love to know, you know, a little bit more about what you actually do day to day. You know, you mentioned you do a lot of, of sourcing efforts, a lot of support for your port codes. Um, what does your day look like? You know, just to kind of paint a picture for our listeners. All right. Well, if you want really, really early. So I wake up at <laughs> 730, do a little bit of a workout. Got to get a run in as I was an avid. Nice, nice. Up and still do that. Just, you got to stay healthy and fit out there. Um, that's but that's now, critical. Yeah. 
it's a critical how I like to look at my day is I section it off into three different parts, right? It's what can I be doing uh, for North Pond from an actual you know portfolio company? Like what am I working on to help support them, whether it's a key task or information gathering? The second part of my day is consists of information grabbing in the ecosystem, whether that's uh, talking to other co-investors, talking to new entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting companies, and just being out and about within New York City, because that's where I'm primarily based. Uh, and then I'd yeah. say the third part is really more of like the execution work of like mathematics behind the scenes, because ultimately I work at a fund. And we have to return capital for our limited partners and our general partners. So it's understanding the nitty gritty uh, numerics of how does this investment pan out? What do we think the company is growing to? What do we think about new market, new products? Uh, what's the right business model? What's the right go to market? And so a very quantitative approach and marriaging a lot of the qualitative stuff that I do earlier in the day. Oh, that's awesome. And I'd love to get your thoughts, you know, just from your perspective, of course, nothing, uh, you know, proprietary or whatever, but what, what kinds of exciting trends are you seeing in the market these days? You know, what are you excited about? Oh, that's a, that's a great question, Jeff. You know, I, given that I focus primarily on healthcare technology, anything where really software will uh, intersect the whole ecosystem, there are two core buckets that I, I've been spending a lot of time in. One, kind of thinking about infrastructure tools to set us up oh, for yeah. the plethora of new therapeutics that will hit the mark over the next five to 10 years, and making sure, one, we're able to capture data appropriately and also manage that data appropriately. So Think about bioinformatics, software tools. Think about you know novel ways to track and manage clinical trials. Thinking about actually leveraging the healthcare ecosystem from the on the delivery side too, where it's you know people are probably familiar with the Epics and the Cerners of the world. Uh, while they're great companies and they have built great businesses, I'm not sure if they're set up to really push us forward in an innovative way and, and handle what the new demands will come. And so I'd say that's the first bucket that gets me really excited right now. The second bucket, though, is classic innovation. So how are we able to turn from a reactive healthcare system to a proactive? So what does yeah. that look like? Novel digital diagnostic software tools that help better diagnose patients up front or flag patients up front that might be at risk to developing chronic diseases in the future. Uh, thinking about, I'd say, novel care models that help support that. So investing in some value-based care uh, companies. So those are really the, the two areas that I've been really excited about over the last, you know, I call it 12 months. And just to dig into that a bit more, I know the whole artificial intelligence, machine learning stuff can get a bit <laughs> hyped, right? Of course, and, and can be sometimes a bit you know, frankly, a bit cringe when, when it's overhyped. But I do think there's a lot of value there as well. You know, on the, the true value side, where do you see a lot of the opportunities for AI, ML, emerging technologies in those buckets that you described? Yeah, and I don't think I'm reinventing the wheel here when I say this. I think AI has massive transformational power. Uh, yeah. And if it's used wisely. Now, we have to build trust with it first. And so well, how I think about it is 
nominal administrative opportunities and, and tasks that can be audit, highly automated. That's where you first will earn the trust of software tools starting to, I don't want to say replace human, but optimize human performance in, in their daily lives. And then eventually we get to the full scale clinical opportunity where, hey, we're actually using algorithms to make clinical, clinically relevant decisions and assisting physicians in their day-to-day -day lives, whether it's radiology, AI capabilities, whether it's uh, CDS tools that may exist out there, and that's an abbreviation for clinical decision support. So, I mean, I think of it as a spectrum and it's a trust-building exercise. I love that perspective. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think that is a, a big, big area um, right now, and, and I think that's gonna continue to be the case. So Mark, I'm interested in digging a little bit more into part two of your day that you described a bit. So the information grabbing in the ecosystem. Uh, we have a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who are uh, entrepreneurs or building products. Um, what advice might you give to someone who is in the ecosystem and wants to talk to an investor such as yourself and wants to be able to get your attention and have a conversation about their product? How can they best go about um, getting a conversation with you, demonstrating the value of their product? Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. And how I think about it is there's three mediums of where you can interact, right? It's one being a uh, cold call, right? So like going on cold outreach on LinkedIn, think about cold emails, and then just hoping that you get in touch with someone. I think the probability of success on that is usually much lower, just given that there's so many inbounds that I have to shuffle through on a day-to-day -day basis, right? The second medium is actually through uh, events within the ecosystem. So for example, you know, I'm involved with the Merck Digital Science Studio and they've hosted great events before. It welcomes the community in New York City and other geographic regions that we have held events prior uh, emerging entrepreneurs to come speak and, you know, have that face-to-face -face opportunity. And that usually has a higher probability of success of a follow-up. The third and the most important is network. And it's actually that like warm introduction that you get from another trusted individual with an ecosystem. And I'd say those usually have probably a 95 to 100% hit rate where it's you were able to prove or able to get the attention of someone that I respect in my network or someone that I regard as an expert. And they're saying, hey, you've got to talk to Mark at North Pond or you got to talk to whoever it may be. And that's usually like the best stamp of approval you can get in opening that door. Yeah, absolutely. That makes that makes total sense. So taking it a step further, once the door is open and you enter into the engagement, have the conversation, what are some things that you look for in a founder to establish that base level of trust um, and interest in moving forward with potentially working with them? Yeah, I, and I think there's probably two things that I look for. Uh, one obviously is domain knowledge and understands like the core problem that they're solving or the solution that they're solving. And that can be demonstrated through the conversation. And then I say the second one is, you know, how passionate are they? Passion is a great word, especially in this ecosystem. You know, being a prior founder, you have to love 
what you do on a day-to-day basis that you eat, sleep, and breathe it. Um, and if that's something that you don't get from your first inter- interaction or engagement with a founder, you kind of lose a little bit of, uh, I don't know, it's com- give conviction, early conviction that they're going to have that, you know, understanding of the long-term path it takes to really build a large and sustainable business. I, I love this. And actually, I was going to just jump in real quick with another question to dig in a bit. So Mark, on that point, you know, for our listeners that maybe don't have a lot of experience yet engaging with VCs, just to demystify that a bit. I mean, what is the process at a high level look like? You know, I'm I'm a founder. I, I send you an email. Uh, we connected through a, a mutual person. And then at, at some point, there's a process that goes to, okay, you've invested in my company, right? <laughs> what does what the path look like between we got connected to we, you are now an investor in my startup. Can you give us kind of a high level? Oh, wow. So uh, it's active on that. <laughs> I know yeah, it's a big the question. Whole diligence process. <laughs> yeah, no, and, yeah. and it depends It's on a case by case basis, right? So, you know, I, I think if you're a new founder, right, it's, you know, what research paper or what KOLs or subject matter experts have you aligned yourself to? And have you built a credible plan, right? And it's like, this is what I want to do. I have an MVP here or I want to build an MVP. And here's why you should, you should invest in me. I did my market work. I'm a strong, credible founder. Um, big, I, I would say like a, a differentiation in their technology itself. So like there's a couple things that as an investor, you know, I go through my investment criteria, right? And, and North Pond's investment criteria is kind of like our North, North Star. Um, and so how we evaluate is we have, you know, ask questions and it's continually creating the, the dialogue of, okay, what are you trying to build towards? How big can this really get? You know, do you have conviction that this will, you know, monumentally change clinical outcomes or processy that will enable better clinical outcomes in the long run? So, you know, that's very broad. I can definitely go into more details about what specific diligence you do, but it's, it's yeah. mainly understanding product, understanding the market, understanding the management team, and then understanding if it's a great investment for potential returns in the long run. Yeah, thanks for taking us through that. And I, I did actually ask that a little bit to, to set up um, a question in the chat window that I'll, I'll ask as well. So uh, Tyler, thanks for this great question. Tyler asks, what are some key milestones that pre-seed or seed stage health or med tech startups should focus on achieving to get to that next level of investment? Oh, Tyler, great question. You know, I think about, it's a simple uh, saying, but the customer is always right. And so what does that mean? So if you're selling a software solution to pharma or diagnostic companies or to systems, it's working with them and having your customers speak to the benefit that they're providing to your organization, right? And I don't want to say that there's a set baseline, a minimum threshold number of customers, but really showing that deep partnership and showing, showcasing the value, right? Early onset as a seed or pre-seed company, that really gets investors excited because that means they can build conviction that there is a market and that you are really building incremental value for the people who ultimately pay for it at the end of the day. That's super insightful. Thanks for that answer, Mark. 
So like, you know, an, an important element for a lot of things and it's kind of a long running joke I have is uh, humans are no different from monkeys who climbed out of trees. And we're very much in the network of we learn from what we see and who we work with. But it tends to it tends to lead to a lot of reinforcement, sometimes of bad ideas. Is there examples that you could put forward as either an investor or advice to founders of how to make sure they don't end up in bad feedback loops? Yeah, and it's a great question, Hamdi. I think of it always as market checks, right? So as long as you engage with the right stakeholders that are giving you the right advice, and by the way, like, you know, it's very easy to get yourself locked into like what one or two people say, but you have to push the boundaries and ask more. Always be challenging your product. Always be tr challenging the problem statement that you're trying to solve, right? And at some point, you know, you will have some contrarian, hopefully, that is able to push back. And if, at that point, you get enough signal that, okay, I need to jump ship or maybe do a little bit of pivot. That's okay. Because that's a whole, you know, fun of early stage uh investing and being a founder is the trial and experimentation of like, what's the right product or what's the right business model I should be looking for, you know? Certainly. And actually, I, I love the use of the word contrarian. Um, it, it, it comes up quite a bit. And I think it comes off as a lot of people are seen as contrarian and there's kind of a fork in the road, right? When one way you are wrong and it is proven out that you are wrong. And in the other way, you kind of lead to creating a gestalt shift, you know, a, a way that everyone's perception of a thing has changed rapidly. Is there an example of kind of a technological gestalt shift that you've observed to date that's kind of like made you exciting and been like, hey, uh, five years ago, I was dead wrong about this. And now things have changed and it's been an opportunity. Ooh, that's... Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm thinking about from a core technology perspective. I don't have one in mind right now, but what I will say is that the value-based care model, and I'm going more onto the healthcare delivery side of things here. I was initially skeptical that it would work, right? I think, and for those who are unaware of what value-based care uh, contracts and what that looks like, this is essentially plans to cover certain members, um, a select pop patient population, and share in the risk that a lot of the payers take on. Uh, and think about the risk curve, right? It's like you know, some patients may uh, be more expensive and have more health episodes, while some may not. And so when you contract in that way, you're equally sharing in the upside and potentially in the downside. Now, in we're not a single payer system. We are we have multiple different commercial entities. We have government entities that all have a different way they like to budget and think about how they manage their patients. So when the idea of value-based care came to cross my desk, I would say early 2018, right? And to, for context, I also was in the healthcare management program at Penn where Ezekiel Emanuel, who is the you know grandmaster of the Affordable Care Act, I think value-based care became a uh, an evolution of what bundle payments was initially trying to do. Um, and so, but in a different, more risk sharing or more risk motivated perspective. So initially when I saw these this business model, I, I thought there's no way the U.S. could ever 
ever go under this and it would be successful. Uh, and that's just because we're too diverse there. How are you going to think about c- caring for a patient, let's say, in one county of Illinois versus the other county of Illinois under the same commercial plan and not expect that there's going to be a deviation in health outcomes? Well, I'm wrong, right? So I take a look now, and I, I don't know there's recent data that shows that Medicare spend is actually plateaued over the last couple of years. And that's probably attributable to multitude of primary care, value-based care arrangements that have happened and have emerged. And a lot of our elderly population are now contracting in some way, shape, or form in value-based care. So, you know, that was long-winded, but it just goes to show you that you may have initial hunch, initial conviction, but over time, the data can prove out that actually you were wrong and maybe you have to adjust and change your perspective. Yeah, that was that was a good one. I mean, uh, you know, to to feed back in that fear of like, you know, having this realization of like what changes is uh I remember being uh driving around out west and someone asked me about like, hey, what's Madrid? And I remember walking by uh, you know, their offices in Cambridge like a few weeks earlier, and I was just like, it's really a question if people will find like a valuable mRNA technology. And seeing that kind of like rapid shift in the the use and volume of it as a vaccine delivery tool has been fairly fascinating um and definitely has led led to a big change of late but definitely in the healthcare pair space big changes there and it's definitely been fascinating so that's very illuminating thanks awesome yeah this is is super cool mark you know for our, our listeners especially uh, founders, new founders, aspiring founders, any final advice for folks that are listening? Oh man. And it's, it's, that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to go back to what my dad told me when I was younger, do what you love. And if you love doing it, eventually you'll make some sort of impact. And so I implore founders to really get passionate and really dig deep into the areas that they're trying to build in understand what the why and understand your internal why not just the why to like the market and to customers but your why why are you doing this and i yeah. think once you find that that perfect marriage you know sky's the limit and i think that's what brings the best out of us as humans and entrepreneurs ultimately awesome well thanks so much mark this was a really interesting uh really illuminating conversation thanks for joining us Thank you guys. I really appreciate you having me on here.